All right, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we are thankful for these gospel accounts. We are thankful for the life of your son, that he came to train us uh, for the church age, as well as to sacrifice himself for our sins. We thank you for the gift of the church and the fellowship that we can have in it. We thank you for your instruction on how to live in the church, and we ask for wisdom and understanding as we look at Jesus Christ's instructions to his apostles uh, for the foundation of the church this evening. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so no promises on getting through all of this. I was very ambitious in uh, determining what we could cover this evening. Uh, but hopefully, Lord willing, we will finish part four, which puts us six months before the death of Jesus Christ, halfway through the Gospels, halfway through our study here. Uh, we have 12 parts total, so naturally these parts are going to start getting a little faster as we wind down towards the end. But this evening we look at primarily the church, because this is the announcement of the uh, foundation of the church. This is the first and only time the church is mentioned in all of the Gospels. There is instruction that is given to the apostles in the upper room discourse about the church, um, but here it is about six months before the death of Christ where he actually announces his program for the church. But first we want to understand a little bit about the disciples and why they seem so bullheaded at times. And I think Jesus teaches them about their own blindness by uh, performing a very unique miracle here in Bethsaida on their way back from Gentile territory. This is the only two-step miracle that Jesus performs. All other miracles are in one step. Here he takes away this blind man's blindness in two steps. First, you'll notice that he takes this blind man outside of the village of Bethsaida. He is not performing public miracles. He is performing private miracles on the basis of a need, um, only for those who already have faith. So he takes this man out of the village so that it would be a private miracle. And then he begins to remove this man's blindness by spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. When he asks the man if he sees anything, the man says he sees men, but he sees them like trees walking around. He only sees partially. He is still partially blind. We could almost relate this to the same metaphor Paul uses that Right now we see as though through a glass darkly, but someday we will see just as we are seen. This is kind of the same principle for this blind man. For now, he has had his sight partially restored. And so God uh, restores the rest of his sight by laying his hands on his eyes again. And then he began to see everything clearly. He told this man then not to enter back into the villages presumably so that he would not tell what had just happened in keeping with his policy. Now, this was a literal healing, a literal miracle. This actually happened to this man that he was had his sight restored in two waves. But this also happens to Israel. They have their sight restored to them in two waves. At first, when the Messiah comes and some of Israel come to believe, that is, the believing remnant in Israel believes. 
but there will come a time in Israel's future where every single Jewish person will believe in the Messiah. This is the very end of the tribulation period, probably the very last hours of the tribulation period. And this partial blindness or partial hardness is announced to us explicitly to explain why it seems that God has done away with the Jews when actually he has not. That is because at the moment he is focused on the Gentiles. This is the time of the Gentiles and God is focused on bringing in Gentile members to his body. And so in Romans 11.25, Paul explains, what do you, uh, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is the two-step healing of Israel's blindness. The disciples are also partially blind still. Though they understand the basics of who the Messiah is, they understand enough for salvation, they don't yet understand quite enough to be useful. And so Jesus is training them to be useful, and he is going to send them the Holy Spirit later who will take away their blindness fully and remind them of all the things that Jesus taught them during their blindness. But we see here in the confession of Peter that he did have partial sight. And so did all of the disciples have partial sight. Now this confession takes place in a pretty unique area up in Caesarea Philippi, which is north of Galilee, not in Gentile territory. It takes place at the base of Mount Hermon, which is outside of the promised land on the edge of Dan. In fact, it probably took place, at least historically, it took place at the opening of the Grotto of Pan. This was one of the headwaters for the Jordan River, and it, uh, it was home to a idol called Pan, and it had a nickname, the Gates of Hades. Here's a look from the top of it. The waters used to come right out of that cave and go in towards the Jordan, and this river, little river that fed the Jordan, was called Banyas. This is probably the location where Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. And the, the conversation went like this. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, he's just another prophet. But then comes this great confession of Peter. Jesus said to them, to all the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of all the disciples, says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. He recognized that Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel. And this was what was required for salvation at that time. This was all that was needed. Now, this was a very emphatic statement by Peter. He left uh, nothing to the imagination here. And this is an incredibly exclusive statement as well. In the Greek, it is 
clearer. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, who is the living one. There could be no confusion about the statement that Peter made. And so Jesus responds to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He is assessing this spiritually and not carnally. Those in Israel who are uh, looking to the flesh to determine who Jesus is are not going to come to an answer. But those who are seeking spiritual truths and spiritual answers will understand the spiritual importance of Jesus' miracles and the statements of God when he spoke from heaven, and especially the miracles of Christ as he performed them and spoke about himself. Now here Simon is called Simon Bar-Jonah, which is the Hebrew way of saying Simon the son of Jonah. But we know from John 1.42 that Simon is not in fact a son of Jonah, but the son of a man named John or Johannes. So the answer to this is either Jonah is a grandfather, but the more likely explanation of this is Jesus is speaking spiritually. In the same sense that a father gives birth to a son and the son is like the father, so Peter is like Jonah. Jonah, who was a minister to the Gentiles, Jonah, who was a prophet with a reluctant mission, Simon assesses things spiritually, though he himself is not perfect. Jonah has plenty of sins counted against him, whereas the other prophets tend to look a bit more like Noah. They're a little bit more uh, willing to serve God on God's terms. Peter has a similar spirit to Jonah, but still he does the will of God. And it was this statement which shows that Peter has faith at least as small as a mustard seed that was the very foundation of the church. It is based on this truth that the church is born. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now this is one reason why it's important where they are, because Jesus is going to use images from around them. He's going to use images to teach them spiritual things. Just as he has done all the way through his ministry, he uses natural things to teach spiritual things because the natural things are understood easily and the spiritual things can be difficult to understand. But the important thing here is that Jesus is drawing a distinction between Peter and this rock. He uses two different words for rock. Peter, his name is Petros, which means a rock, a stone, or a pebble. And the other word here for rock is Petra, which is a much larger, much stronger, much sturdier rock, even speaking of bedrock or a mountain. Also, these do not agree. Uh, actually, let me get there. Petra, say rock, a stone, a pebble. Petra, rocks, cliffs, ridges, or bedrock. There would have been both there at the place where they were standing. There would be Petros in the river, and there would be a great Petra behind them. These cannot be mistaken when you understand their difference. They cannot be called the same thing. Not only that, but it was 
this, this hutas, rock, which he built his church on, contradistinction, in contradistinction to the Petros of Peter. In other words, there are two kinds of rocks here. One is Peter, and one is Peter's statement. On that statement, Jesus is going to build his church. The statement, the confession of Jesus as the Messiah, is a far greater thing to build a church on. Not only that, but the building of his church is future. It is not something that existed before. It is not something that Israel, as Israel, was part of. But it is something that through faith after the resurrection, uh, one will enter into. And this will constitute not just of Jews, but of Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. This new thing, this church, is also something that will not be overpowered by death. Gates of Hades is something that, as I said, would have been just behind them. But this was also a euphemism for death in Hebrew. Death would not overpower the church because those who are part of the church do not die. In John 11, he will teach this more explicitly, not in a metaphor, but in plain speech. He will say, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the truth of all who are in the church, that they will never die. And so the gates of Hades, death does not break the church. It does not destroy the church. One who dies in the church will be resurrected as part of the church. Jesus also promises to Peter that he will give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, all of these verses are used by the Catholic Church as the foundation for their theology, that Peter was the foundation, the rock upon which the church was built, not his statement, but Peter himself, and that he had an apostolic authority that was passed down from him to all successive popes. Now, besides the fact that there's no record that Peter was even ever in Rome, he went to Babylon and probably died there, they still claim these verses as papal authority, that Peter handed down these kings to the kingdom of heaven, and that this would be the excommunication from heaven or the entrance into heaven for all who became part of the Catholic Church. But this is not at all what this keys to the kingdom of heaven signifies. We see these keys used once and for all in the book of Acts. And they are used for three different people groups. The three different people groups that Jesus indicates when speaking of salvation. When he tells the, the apostles to go, or the disciples to go into all of Israel and preach to the house of Israel, not to the Samaritans and not to the Gentiles. He is bringing them a message, which is the promise of salvation from the Old Testament in the Messianic Kingdom. This will be opened to the Samaritans and the Gentiles in the book of Acts, specifically into the church. And so it is these three houses that he is going to give access into the kingdom using this authority that God gives him,
that Jesus gives him there. The first to enter is the house of Israel. Notice that the house of Israel needs the church opened to it. It is not the same thing as the church. It is a different, a distinct body. They are all saved peoples of God, but the church is not equivalent to salvation. It is equivalent to all who believe in this age. But it is not the end-all, be-all of salvation and God's plan, purpose, and plan of salvation. There were those saved before the church was on the earth, and there will be those saved after the church is taken off the earth, and none of those will be accounted as part of the church. But here, the house of Israel gains access to the body of the church, the body of Christ himself. In Acts 2.36, we read, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is Peter's great sermon in Acts 2, directed to the house of Israel, to whom he is using these keys to open up the doors into the kingdom, the doors into the church in this dispensation. And here was the response. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now these are told to repent, whereas the Samaritans and the Gentiles are not, because these had a particular sin weighing against their account, the rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, which would result in the judgment on Jerusalem and those Jews who were not believers in the Messiah in 70 AD. This repentance was a change of mind from their previous position that Jesus was not the Messiah, but a demon-possessed uh, man, to the truth that Jesus was the Christ of God and that he was the Messiah promised from times old. And that here he, let's see, back a verse. Yes that he is the Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. And so at that point, they were baptized in the name of Christ, and they received the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a unique feature of the church, not true of any other peoples of God, not true of Israel. They would have for a time the Holy Spirit come on them to empower them to a service of God, but then it would depart again. The truth of the body of the church is that the Holy Spirit comes to abide. It comes to indwell, never again to leave forever. This is the keys to the kingdom. In Acts 8, we see this, these keys of the kingdom used for the Samaritans. It is interesting here that Philip first goes to preach to these Samaritans and they receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. When they, the Samaritans, believed Philip's words, Philip's preaching, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. They were saved, they were believers, but they were not yet inaugurated into the church. They were saved just like Old Testament believers were saved. But then Peter was sent to them so that they would gain access into the church. 
Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This was the authority that Peter had to give this people group entrance into the church. And so from this point forward, every Jew who believed in Jesus Christ immediately was baptized by the Holy Spirit and became part of the church. And every Samaritan who believed in Jesus and was baptized by the Holy Spirit and was immediately introduced into the church. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they oh, I read that. Then they, Peter and John, began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, the Gentiles gain access or entrance into the church, the very last people group. While Peter was still speaking these words, the gospel of salvation, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And so from that point forward, all Gentiles who believed in Jesus Christ became a part of the church, being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so it is true then here what Peter says. Peter's ministry started after, or uh, Paul rather, Paul's ministry started after Peter opened the doors of the church to the Gentiles. And he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The church, one by one, these three people groups, were opened by Peter, and that door, once opened, could not be shut. Now this is interesting, since when we come to the letters in Revelation, Revelation 3-7, to the church of Philadelphia, now, Philadelphia is a joyful church, but at the same time, they are undergoing persecution. This is religious persecution uh, of a different sort than Smyrna was receiving. This is persecution by the Judaizers, who are saying that these Gentiles in the church of Philadelphia have no access to God because they do not come through the synagogue. And so Jesus' words to them, he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, and I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, these keys of David and the keys of the kingdom are essentially the same thing. David is the king over that kingdom. You cannot have access through the keys of the kingdom being something different than the keys of David. They are one and the same. And so Gentiles, Samaritans, Jews, all alike will enter into the kingdom of the Messiah. And in this age, it is those who are part of the church, since all believers in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, 
enter into the church. It is the church in this age that will gain access into the kingdom. Lastly, Jesus gives here Peter the authority to bind and loose. This has also been misappropriated for the use of spiritual warfare when that is nowhere here in the context. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now this binding and loosing was a well-known rabbinic term or a rabbinic idiom, and it had two uses. It had a legislative use to permit something or to prohibit something. And it had a judicial use, to punish or not to punish. And for Peter and for the apostles, this had both uses. In Matthew 16, Peter received this right. But in Matthew 18, 18, this was extended to all the apostles. When Jesus said, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We see this exercised, and I'm just going to give two examples, one of each. This legislative loosing and binding is exercised in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, where they get notice, James being the head of this church, they get notice that some of the Gentiles are not living under the Mosaic law. This is not a feature of the church, but it's causing some believers uh, some Jewish believers to stumble. And so James permits and prohibits certain things, and he sends uh, this permission to those Gentiles. And he says, It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from the things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well, farewell. This was the letter that he sent to them exercising this judicial or this legislative right to permit or to uh, prohibit. And here what he's doing is prohibiting. None of these things were prohibited to the Gentiles. Actually, never mind. Uh, not under the law were these things prohibited to the Gentiles. Um, but he is saying, keep these things in the fellowship of your congregation so as to keep peace. In other words, these are not salvation issues. Faith alone is a salvation issue. But these are the rules that he is handing down to the church for fellowship. On the judicial side of things, uh, we only really see Peter exercising this judicial capacity. And it's something that lives and dies with Peter. It does not extend to the rest of the church. Um, the legislative as well, those things that were permitted or denied in the apostolic era. The church today does not have ability to add to those or subtract from those. That was an apostolic authority. And there is no such thing as apostolic succession. Here in Acts 5, however, Peter exercises a judicial sentence on Ananias and Sapphira, showing the extent to which God will punish a believer for sin in the fellowship of believers. And so this, in Acts 5-7, takes place after Ananias has been killed, and Sapphira is about to enter. 
Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she answered, Yes, that was the price. A predetermined lie by Ananias and Sapphira. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Now Peter himself, in himself, did not have the authority to sentence anyone to death, but rather he had the authority to pronounce the sentence that the Holy Spirit would have on this person. And so we see that Peter did not take it upon himself to execute this sentence, but that the Holy Spirit executed this sentence. Immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. The young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Now this authority Peter had, but this authority extends to the rest of the church in a different sense, only in the sense of excommunication. You cannot put another believer to death, but the church body can excommunicate an unrepentant believer. We'll talk about that in Matthew 18. At this point, Jesus again tells his disciples of the program of his death. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Now for us, being on this side of the death and resurrection of the Messiah, have no problem with this statement. For the Jews, they had a problem with this statement. It did not fit into their prescribed theology. It does fit with their Hebrew scriptures, especially Isaiah 53, but they didn't know what to do with Isaiah 53. In fact, they had even proposed that there would be two messiahs so that one could die and the other could rule. They have a misunderstanding here, or they are unable to understand because their preconceived theology does not fit with Jesus' statements. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but on man's. Now notice the irony here. Just a few passages earlier, Peter had understood Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah of God, because God had revealed it to him and flesh had not revealed it to him. But here he is depending on his flesh. And so rather than believing the one whom he just claimed to be the very Messiah, God himself, he rebukes him for a statement that he did not like. Jesus here calls him Satan. He is doing the deeds of Satan. We see in uh, 2 Timothy 2, which I don't have here, I think it's about verse 26, that even believers can be used for Satan's deeds. In fact, that's a good church discipline verse in a pastoral epistle. But here, Jesus begins to teach his disciples the cost, not of salvation, but of discipleship. 
For discipleship, there is a cost for the believer or, or a possible cost for the believer. But for salvation, there is no cost. Jesus has paid the whole cost. One who decides to follow and serve Jesus might not have the most comfortable life, especially in the context of these disciples. In first century Israel, where the entire culture is against them, where the leaders are against them and seeking to kill him. And so he tells them, tells the disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That means to renounce Jesus in order to not be killed by the Jewish leadership. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit will it profit or for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul or what will a man give in exchange for his soul Now in the Greek this word soul can mean either eternal soul or breath of life in the context it seems that this would mean just the breath of life his physical life since it would contradict other scriptures where a believer cannot lose his salvation he cannot lose his eternal soul once it is held in the double grip of God the Father and Christ the Son. And so, to turn against Jesus Christ after becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ here in the first century, if they turn away from him in order to spare their lives at the hands of the Jews, then they will come under the judgment of 70 AD and die nonetheless. But, If they stay faithful to Jesus Christ as a disciple, they might be killed. But just as we read in John 11, a few verses ago, even if they die, they will yet live and there will be rewards waiting for them in heaven. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. This has to do with rewards. Now, Jesus is going to use this promise of the future to show them something in the present. He says here, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then, he is going to show them exactly what he means. Now, this is the famous transfiguration of Jesus Christ, and this is in the context of promising the kingdom to come. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father, and then he says to his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now this does not mean that the kingdom was established in their day, but this was instead Uh, fulfilled less than a week or about a week later. And it was fulfilled just up the hill from Caesarea Philippi, where Peter made his great confession. They would have gone up this mountain onto Mount Hermon. And here, Jesus was transfigured. Notice this took place six days later. 
Now, Matthew and Mark say six days. Luke says eight days. It is most likely that Luke is counting the end of the first day and the beginning of the day that this actually happened, where Matthew and Mark are counting the interceding days. There is no contradiction here. But six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, some of the disciples, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, Mount Hermon is the highest peak there in Israel. And then he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. I believe it is Luke who says that even if you tried to wash his uh, garments, they could not become any whiter. And Mark says that they became as white as if they were light itself. His face shone like the sun in a similar manner as Moses' face shone when he went up Mount Sinai and was in the presence of God. But this glory did not come from being in the presence of God. It came from being God himself. And this transfiguration was a pulling away of the veil, the veil of Jesus Christ's flesh, so that the glory which, uh, so that his own glory would shine through. Now this ought to teach us something about the cost that Jesus paid to come to earth. Not only did he die on our behalf, but his glory was concealed while he was here. Philippians 2.6 shows us both of these truths. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Coming to earth was not just a high price to pay, but a humiliation. His glory would be concealed, and it was only revealed twice, once here at his transfiguration and then once at the resurrection. He himself, it says in Hebrews 1.3, is the radiance of his glory, of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand, the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. His humiliation, his humbling of himself, was demonstrated in his transfiguration. This will be important in the coming verses where Jesus' disciples struggle with humbling themselves. This also tells us something about life after death. Because Jesus is here greeted by two who have already departed from this earth. Matthew 17.3 says, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now it is important that both Elijah and Moses are there because they both departed this earth in a different way. Elijah was raptured the same way Enoch was raptured, the same way the church will be raptured in the, uh, or before the tribulation period. But Moses died, and Moses had the hope of resurrection in the future. And so here we see 
for both parties, the raptured and the resurrected, there is life after death. But being that this is Moses and Elijah, we also have the promise of Scripture being fulfilled. Elijah stands in representation of the prophets, the predictive word of God, the predictive scriptures. Moses stands in for the law, the prescriptive word of God. Jesus Christ, when he dies on the cross, will fulfill the predictions of the prophets and the prescription of the law. Here in Luke 9.30, we see what Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about. And it was exactly the fulfillment of both the prophets and the law. Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, departure here is the Greek word exodus, which is a euphemism for death. They were speaking with Jesus about his death in Jerusalem. We also see a conf confirmation of Jesus Christ's messiahship. Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. They couldn't stay awake for this transfiguration. But when they were fully awake and they saw his glory and the two men standing with him, and as these two men were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Now, this is not necessarily a bad statement by Peter. This is good application, but bad theology. Sometimes we see it the other way around. He knows that Jesus Christ, when he establishes his kingdom, he will fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Peter is assuming that this is the establishment of the kingdom, that this is the fulfillment of tabernacles, and so he wants to begin celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. What he does not understand is the Feast of the Passover must come first. The Passover feast must first be fulfilled. Now, once again, Peter we got to be a little generous to him. The Tabernacles is the next feast chronologically in his time. Passover is, over, is almost a year away, whereas the Feast of Tabernacles is just around the corner, a few weeks perhaps. But at this point, uh, while he was still speaking, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. That would be all six men. They were afraid as they entered into the cloud. And from the cloud, a voice came out saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, this is almost the same statement that God made from heaven at Jesus Christ's baptism, where he says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But here he adds the phrase, Listen to him. Heed his words. This is something the disciples have had some difficulty with. Jesus is teaching them about his program of atonement, and they are not doing a wonderful job listening to him. Lastly, this transfiguration is confirmation of the kingdom. Jesus Christ said that the kingdom is coming, and he said that they would not, or some of them would not die before they saw the glory of his kingdom. And here they have seen the glory of his kingdom, and this is confirmation of the kingdom to come.
But then after this voice had spoken, only Jesus was found there. Moses and Elijah had gone away. They kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of these things which they had seen. Now we learn from Mark that they didn't tell anyone because Jesus told them not to tell anyone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he, Jesus, gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Now, they are exercising here uh, allegorical interpretation, and they're not doing a great job at it. They are not taking God's words literally in his son, Jesus Christ. They are not listening to God's statement to listen to his son. Rather, they are trying to reinterpret his words to fit their theology instead of reinterpreting their theology to fit the words of Jesus. This is bad practice. But while they're trying to figure out what death could possibly mean, because it can't possibly mean death, they ask Jesus, what is it that the scribes say, or why is it that the scribes say Elijah must come first? And Jesus entertains their question, though a much better question would have been to just ask him what death meant and uh, receive the chiding that likely would have come, but then hopefully understanding. Nevertheless, they are partially blind at this time. But Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. The theology of the Pharisees is correct. Elijah does come first. And then he asks them another question to try to get them thinking. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? In other words, how do you fit Isaiah 53 into your theology? How do you understand the suffering of the Messiah? If Elijah does come first, where does the suffering fit? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now this is not a uh, literal in, or a literal fulfillment. This is an applicational fulfillment. Elijah has come in the type of John the Baptist. Elijah himself, the literal fulfillment of Malachi 4, will still come in the future. Mark says this explicitly. I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. But John one twenty one says, when John himself is asked if he is Elijah, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. So he's neither the Messiah nor Elijah to come. He comes as a forerunner, we're told in Luke. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Two forerunners are coming with a similar purpose, one for Jesus' first advent and one for his second. John fulfills the prophecy of Malachi 3.1, the unnamed forerunner. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Their theology, or their improper theology, began at making these two prophecies in Malachi one prophecy. 
It, had, it was two prophecies, and Elijah was named in the second. The one that came before had a different fulfillment in a different person, John the Baptist. And so Elijah is still yet to come, and he is yet to come in order to fulfill Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is speaking of the second advent of Christ before that great and terrible day of the Lord, when he puts an end to all of the, or to this cosmos system. All right, we might not be able to finish this, but we will dip into the training of the disciples after hit this. And it starts here on this descent from uh, Mount Hermon and continues all the way back into Galilee. When he came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around him and some scribes arguing with him. Immediately, when the, in, or when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? So Jesus and his three disciples come down and find the other nine disciples in an argument with the scribes. And there is a big crowd around them. So here we see a demonstration of their partial blindness. One from the crowd answers Jesus' question, what are you discussing? He says, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. So he's having seizures and this demon is causing him to have suicidal tendencies as well. But notice this ought to perk your ears every time you hear it. This demon causes muteness. This was the messianic miracle that Jesus performed, which caused Israel to stumble over him. He performed a miracle, the miracle of casting out a demon causing muteness, something that no one believed possible. And so they claimed that he himself was demon-possessed. These disciples should have learned from this event. Surely they knew that this sort of exorcism was not possible. But then when they saw Jesus do it, they thought here, it must be possible for us to do this as well. But Jesus deals first with the demonized child, and then he deals with his disciples. He answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. This is the same statement he began to say to the first century Jews when they rejected him in Matthew 12. He called them an unbelieving generation. This is a generational ridicule. First century Israel was offered the kingdom and they rejected the kingdom. They rejected the king on the basis of demon possession. And now here one comes to him with a similar affliction. He says, bring him to me. They brought the boy to him and when he saw him immediately, the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. The demon was trying to kill him. But Jesus does not immediately cure this boy. He talks to the father first. He asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? He is trying to assess the need. 
He said from childhood, it has often thrown him in both into a fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. There is a real need. This is a prolonged affliction, and it's threatening the boy's life. The first condition for Jesus to perform a miracle on the basis of a personal need from the compassion of Christ, this has been fulfilled. But the condition of faith still needs to be fulfilled. Jesus said to him, or wait, not done here. Uh, but then the father says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This is a statement of doubt. And so Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, this is not a blanket statement without a context. This is a statement within a context that right here, right now, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is standing before this man, and a miracle is available to him, and there is nothing that the Messiah is unable to do. All that is required of this man to receive a miracle at this point in Jesus' ministry is faith. Now, Jesus Christ is still in our day able to perform any miracle, but that is not a blanket statement that faith alone will produce any miracle we want or believe we need. And this father gets the message. Faith alone is left uh, or is required here for the miracle to be performed, and Jesus is capable of performing any miracle. There is no if you can about it. He can, no matter what it is. And so immediately the, bother, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. He has faith at least as large as a mustard seed. And he asks to be discipled as well. He asks for his faith to grow, for his faith to be strengthened. But here Jesus sees that the crowd is rapidly gathering. He had pulled the boy aside saying, bring him to me so that this miracle would not be performed in the midst of the large crowd. This would go against his policy for performing miracles. And so before the crowd arrives, he rebukes this unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. This demon exited very violently and left the boy close to death. And Jesus performs another miracle similar to the miracle that he performed for Peter's mother. He takes the boy by the hand and he raises him and he gets up. He is no longer as if he is dead. His body is also restored. But now Jesus deals with the disciples. When he came into the house, his disciples began to question him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind of demon cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, usually we focus just on the last part. It cannot come out by anything but prayer. But specifically, it is said this kind of demon. What kind of demon? The very kind of demon that is a testament to Jesus Christ's messiahship. Now, we understand that he says it can only be cast out by prayer, 
what prayer did Jesus Christ the Messiah say to cast out this demon? He said none. He cast it out on his own authority. But the disciples do not have this authority to cast out a demon. They are not the Messiah. And so for them, it might be granted that God would cast out this demon on God's authority through prayer, but they could not rebuke this kind of demon and cast it out of anyone. This is a messianic miracle. And so from there they went out and began to go through Galilee. They are back in Jewish jurisdiction, and Jesus did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But once again, they did not understand his statement, and they were afraid to ask. Some of Jesus' clearest statements about his death, they did not understand it because their theology precluded them from understanding it. They were partially blind. All right, we're going to end there tonight, uh, and I will suggest reading the packet for the rest, because we're going to have to move on, but the rest is essentially more teaching similar to Matthew 16, where Jesus will teach them elaborating on church doctrine, uh, specifically about church uh, government and rewards in the kingdom. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for uh, your word that we can always go back and study it and learn more from it. We pray for further understanding, and we pray the same thing that this boy's father prayed. Uh, we believe and help our unbelief. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.